Corinthians chapter 6. If you're in need of a Bible to read along with us this morning, just in the back of the pew in front of you, the black one is a Bible, and you're welcome to use that. Use the index at the front to find 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. As we read today, I want you to notice structurally what's going on in the passage. It's, it's very significant here, and it's easy to miss, especially because, as is often the case, uh, there's a chapter break right in the middle of this section that actually goes together. And so it's really easy, if you read the Bible regularly, chapter by chapter, to miss the significance of what's going on here. And the structure is incredibly simple. Just think of an Oreo cookie, okay? We're going to see that the first part, the first few verses, and the last few verses are on the exact same topic, and then we've got something completely different in the middle, okay? Now, why doesn't that confuse us with an Oreo cookie? Because it's the two together that makes the whole cookie, right? Okay? And so what's striking about this passage is how Paul steps in a completely different direction and then returns to his initial point, and in doing so, makes a greater, more significant point. We've been looking in the last few weeks at the changes that happen when we enter into relationship with Jesus, and we're going to focus this morning on a change in boundaries, a change in how we draw the lines. And so what I want you to notice is that he talks about Um, Two very different groups of people this morning in two very different ways. Read with me, starting in chapter 6, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak uh, speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowed with joy. Did you see what I was talking about? Did you notice? He starts and he says, make room in our hearts. And then when we get to chapter 7, verse 2, he repeats it. Widen your heart, he says. Make room in our hearts. In fact, we could delete verses 14 
through the end of chapter 6 all the way into 7-1, and you wouldn't notice they were missing. The beginning and the end go together. In fact, it's probably worthwhile to read it as uh, if those verses in 14 through 7-1 didn't exist. So let's start again one more time in verse 11. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. 7-2. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Do you see how connected those two are? And so it's odd that his focus in the beginning and the end of this passage is talking about his relationship with the church in Corinth for reconciliation. But in the middle is this passage that deals not with Paul and the Corinthians, but the Corinthians and non-Christians. And he moves in an opposite direction. And so he says, widen your hearts. And then he says, sever your ties. Do you see how he does both here? Now, I think the reason he does so is probably because the problem he has in his relationship with the church in Corinth involves their relationship with people outside the church in Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see what I'm talking about. The Corinthian church uh, was um, a significant part and enjoyed all the benefits of being well-connected with the broader community of Corinth. And so it was common for them to go to parties or festivals or feasts that were hosted in particular pagan temples, even though those meals were offered up on behalf of these other gods. Uh, We find that some of the men in the church in Corinth were visiting prostitutes, maybe even temple prostitutes, uh, and were saying it's no big deal. And Paul argues it's a very big deal. Okay, And so somewhere in the response to this letter, they're having to choose. They're having to choose between their relationship with Paul and their relationship with the broader world. And it gives us an opportunity this morning to talk about boundaries. Now, one more thing before before we pray. Um, We have to, by nature of this passage, make extensive use of a very simple metaphor this morning, but I think it's one that's easily misunderstood. Inside and outside. I don't know any other way to talk about what we're going to talk about without using that basic metaphor of inside and outside, but we have to recognize there's a lot of negative connotation, there's a lot of baggage that we could graft into that metaphor that I want to leave aside this morning, okay? When we say inside and outside, we naturally move into insiders and outsiders, okay? And so as we will see this morning, take outsiders first, this idea of boundaries is not one, not one that justifies or even allows for mistreatment of outsiders. Okay? In the same way with insiders. Insider is often something that involves either, like the first thing I thought of when I thought of inside this morning was inside information or insider trading. Okay? Uh, these are not good things. These are people who are taking advantage. Um, but more importantly for us this morning... Oftentimes, inside versus outside, uh, think back to middle school, is a badge of honor, right? We are the ones who are the insiders. You are merely an outsider. We are the hip group. We are the connected ones. We are the important ones. We are the significant ones. We have to try and hold off on all of that. As we'll see, that won't stick to what's going on here. 
In fact, just consider with me the behavior of Jesus himself. He was a breaker of boundaries, was he not? Every cultural line that had been drawn between us and them, Jesus constantly crossed, constantly challenged, and it made people terribly uncomfortable. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus also drew boundaries. Sometimes people would come to him and say, what must I do to be saved? And he would draw a clear line in the sand saying, you are currently on the outside, come inside. Okay. Let's just address this one different way with the concept of tolerance. Okay. When we read a passage like this from a modern mindset, sometimes we get concerned uh, that what we're talking about here is inherently intolerant. In fact, there are often passages of the scripture that can come off as intolerant. I mean, he says some strong things here. In the contrast he makes, he refers to those outside as those in darkness, in the fellowship of Belial, which is another name for Satan, uh, idolatry. There's a bunch of things there, but here's the thing to keep in mind. Every organization, every community uh, has boundaries, Okay. That doesn't necessarily make those boundaries inappropriate, and it definitely doesn't make uh, that organization intolerant. Okay. Every organization has standards and agreed-upon values, and if you no longer hold those standards or agreed-upon values, it's not necessarily intolerant for you to be removed from the group. What tolerance traditionally is about is how you treat those on the outside. It's not a removal. It doesn't say there is no outside, there is no inside. It says because someone's on the outside, shouldn't change the way you treat them, shouldn't change the dignity or the respect you give them, okay? And that's what we see in Jesus, because the truth is, a lot of the boundaries he crosses are not ones that bother us, right? And so he recognizes that there's a good deal of racial prejudice in Judaism and he's stepping outside those boundaries and it makes people uncomfortable and he doesn't bat an eye. He knows that there are some standards of gender in his day that do not make sense and he crosses. He speaks publicly with a single woman in the middle of the street and the disciples come on in John chapter 4 and they don't even know how to process that. But Jesus isn't bothered. But don't ever forget that Jesus also walks into the house of Levi the tax collector and says, hey, let's have lunch. That might be one we resonate with a little bit more. He was a scandalous extortioner. He was making a living off of taking advantage of other people, and Jesus sat and ate with him. He came in and he sat at the dinner table with Pharisees, those who were so religious that they were the only insiders and all others were on the outside and yet he crossed those boundaries as well but he challenged all of them with this inside and outside metaphor okay and so the the point I want to make this morning is that if we lose this idea of inside and outside we lose Jesus we lose the gospel and let me just add this okay one more lens to look at this this morning if you look at Christianity, it is by far the most exclusive of all religions. Because no one, by right of birth, by right of behavior, by right of decision, can say, I deserve to be here. I've earned my place. I belong. Jesus, in his life and in his message, the gospel in what it demands, God in his holiness, puts us all outside but it's also the most exclusive. 
or sorry, the most inclusive. Because that means that there is no prequalification, prerequisite. That if we all stand equally condemned before God, then the salvation God offers in Jesus Christ is equally available to everyone. We don't have to share a culture or a language or an economic status or some standard of righteousness. If all stand equally on the outside, then the door stands open. But the threshold has to be crossed to be inside. Okay? So laying that framework that Jesus, in his statement, come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, is both saying, Everyone's weary and heavy laden, and I have an app for that, right? I have a fix for that, okay? Uh, In saying that, uh, as Paul does, that none are righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he can then go on and say, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God available in Jesus Christ is salvation, is eternal life, okay? They go hand in hand. Nonetheless, when we look at the passage this morning, A decent way to describe it is that Paul talks about how we should behave with insiders and outsiders. So, with that being said, I want to read the passage one more through with that one more time through with that framework, and then I want to pray, and we'll talk further. Again, in verse eleven, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement is in the te- uh, is, has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God? As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, therefore go out from their midst." Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning and as we meditate on the transition, on the changes that we encounter in relationship with you, in our relationship with one another and with other people in general, God, I ask that you would help us to see truth, to understand what we read. I pray, Lord, that we would have open hearts for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think it's worthwhile for us to look at both halves, one and then the other. What Paul is doing in the beginning and the very end of this section is talking about his relationship with the Corinthians, which is strained. There's distance there. They've stepped away from Paul. Critics have come in and they've agreed with those critics and so they've put Paul at a distance, maybe even out to pasture, kicked him out of the church that he started 
if you will. And so for chapters upon chapters, he's been trying to explain to them how his ministry operates in relationship with Jesus Christ and in relationship with them. And as we've seen week to week, his concern is that by distancing themselves from Paul, they're also distancing themselves from God. Not because Paul is so great, but let me remind you all this morning that the church was planted by Paul. That the Jesus they've received is the Jesus whom Paul preached. And so this distance, this severing, not only is it kind of incongruent with that reality, but it doesn't line up with the facts. That's why at the end of the passage here he says, I haven't taken advantage of anyone. I haven't corrupted anyone. Right? He says, I've got a clean slate. The accusations are false. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is what he sees as the way Christian relationships should be. Okay? Insider relationships, if you will. Now, we need to keep in mind here the striking fact of this relationship. When he says, for example, that these people are his great comfort, that he takes great pride in them, don't forget a handful of facts. Fact one, Paul is a Jew and uh, in his earlier life was a devoted, fanatical Jew. He had taken into his blood veins the law, meditated on it, sought to fulfill it every day, and because of that had distanced himself entirely from anyone who was not a Jew. Why does Paul plant the church in Corinth? Because he travels to Corinth. And why does Paul travel to Corinth? You see, what's significant about Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church is it's already a breaking of barriers. In fact, there are other things that they don't have in common. There's an economic class problem in this relationship. You see, when Paul got to Corinth, it was during a culture where it was very popular for people to make a living as glorified life coaches, okay? Telling people how to live and laying out their philosophy, and they were primarily judged on their ability to speak. So Paul gets to Corinth and he goes, okay, I got a few things I need to do. I need to distance myself from the crowd. I don't want anyone to believe in Paul. I want them to believe in Jesus. And so he does two things. The first is he sets aside all of his rhetorical ability, which he has plenty. Read the book of Romans, okay? And he says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I set aside the wisdom of this world for the foolishness of the gospel of Christ. But the second thing he does is he looks around and he goes, every other speaker is making a living for themselves, making a name for themselves, because they're ultimately about themselves. And so he says, for people to understand what the gospel means, I'm going to do it for free. So nobody can look and go, what's in this for Paul? For him to do that, he takes up a job in the marketplace making tents, okay? Getting his hands dirty, covered in calluses, Sweating it out, right? He steps into the lower class of Corinthian society and, and works there comfortably. Most of the Corinthian church are bothered by that. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, that's something his critics are pointing out. They're going, do you really want to associate with a guy from his, his place? 
Do you, I mean, if he was such a great person, then why is he making tents? And so there's a breaking of, uh, of status of class here. And then we have to deal with, I think, the most extensive and the difficult one. This was not some sort of irreconcilable differences break in relationship. This was not a no-fault divorce between Paul and the Corinthian church. The Corinthians have mistreated Paul. They've behaved poorly against him. He is taking a completely odd posture for an apostle who could come in and just go, you guys are crazy. I'm in charge here. (laughs) Instead, he comes and gently tries to draw them back, compassionately deals with this, but he talks extensively in this letter about his suffering, and a good deal of that suffering is caused by these people. So they have all these differences. And notice what he says. He says in verse 11, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. When it says spoken freely there, the metaphor, the, the language that he actually uses is our mouths are wide open. He says our mouths are open and our hearts are open. He hasn't been guarded in his language. He's been careful, but he's not holding secrets. There's no manipulation. He's not twisting the evidence. He's, there's no spin. He's been completely opened mouth with them and his heart is open to them. Now some of us are smart enough to realize that that's part of why this is so painful to Paul. If he just close his heart and go away and say, you know what, forget them, his life would be a lot more enjoyable, a lot safer. But see, this is the thing that's always true about relationship in general, is that relationship equals vulnerability. It, the closer you get to someone, the more dangerous that relationship is. That's why trust is so significant in human relationships. That's why we can't just flip a switch when things go sideways and start fresh. Right? It has to be rebuilt. But here Paul, contrary to his history with the church, continues to bear his heart to them, to open wide, to maintain a posture of vulnerability. Now the reason why I say this here is because when you look at the relationships that Paul is envisioning for people inside the church, he's calling for them to be relatively deep, surprisingly intimate, terribly vulnerable. He says that the relationships within the church should be of great significance. But we have to recognize that in doing so, he breaks through a lot of barriers. He breaks through a lot of boundaries. Now, I want to touch on a couple of things. He he here uses in both sides, inside and outside, the picture of a family. Okay? Uh, notice what he says in um, verse 13. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. That's easy to misunderstand because that's not the best translation of what he says. What he's saying here is, I'm speaking as to my children. Okay? Paul is initiating from a place of vulnerability, and that's appropriate because in some sense, he's their father. He's the one who loved them first. What brought Paul to Corinth? An invitation? No. A desire to see people in Corinth know God. And so as he speaks, as he proclaims the gospel, as people receive it, he sees himself somewhat as a father figure and them as his children. And so he's putting himself in this place, but what does he want? He wants familial relationships. 
He wants loving relationships. Notice profoundly how Paul speaks. First off, in verse 2 of chapter 7, um, we see here that he has made it a point to live a certain way with other people. Notice what he says. He says, make room in our hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Now, most likely, Paul there is actually engaging with the big criticisms of the Corinthian church, of these people who have come in and put Paul's role into question. These are the accusations. And so Paul is just setting them aside. But he says that he can set them aside with good conscience. Okay, what I'm saying here is that here we get a shorthand for how not to treat one another. Right? The church should be a place where we have wronged no one, where we have corrupted no one, and where we take advantage of no one. Okay? Now some of us may remember uh, that those were primary aspects of where we come from. Now, maybe that came back to some other boundary drawing, some other inside and outside, okay? So, for example, if we ask the question, is it wrong to kill someone? The answer, relatively across the world, is yes, depending on where you draw boundaries, right? And so, you could say, but what about cannibals? That's true, but cannibals don't eat their mom, right? There's an insider, outsider philosophy of even cannibalism, okay? What Paul points out here is that what happens in Jesus Christ is so significant, whatever other associations, whatever other relationships, whatever other boundaries you used to draw, the inside is now one of family. It's one of togetherness, not one of hustling, not one of shoulder to shoulder trying to get ahead, not one of rat race, of trying to be the most important or the most visible or the most popular. All of that stuff has to be set aside. Because there's an inside. And we're in it. In fact, notice how Paul views the Corinthian church. Emphasis on the Corinthian church. What he's about to say, if he were to say it about the church in Philippi, we'd go, yeah, that makes sense. They seem like they have a great relationship. If he said it about the Thessalonians, we'd go, okay, sure. But listen to what he says about the church in Corinth. He says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. Now, the word there is freedom of speech. He's speaking freely. And so sometimes freedom of speech means he speaks without pulling any punches. Sometimes it means he's free to say what's actually on his mind. And sometimes it means with full honesty. It's a broad concept in the Greek language. But nonetheless, what we see here is one of truly being known. He's borne his heart on the table to the Corinthian church. See, here's one of the things about opening wide your heart like Paul does. As I mentioned earlier, it's more dangerous, not less. Even if it's a last-ditch effort to restore the relationship, which is clearly where they're at, Paul and the church in Corinth. It's a dangerous one. It's not a simple one. Paul doesn't create a bunch of hoops and go, okay, if we're going to fix this, you're going to have to show me you're on my side. No, he puts himself in a lower position, takes on more vulnerability, sets aside his armor, and says, look, this is is who I really am. But listen how he describes the church in Corinth here. He says, I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort 
In all affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Now, clearly what that doesn't mean is that his relationship with the church is always comfortable. Clearly what it doesn't mean is that the church in Corinth isn't doing anything that Paul's not proud of. Clearly it doesn't mean that the church is one 100% joy and no suffering. Even when he says, even in our affliction, most likely he's not talking about affliction over there. He's talking about affliction. He says, even in your mistreatment, in my heart, it's full of joy. He loves the church in Corinth. Is that unnatural? Absolutely. See, this is something significant that happens in Jesus Christ. It's that when that relationship changes, so do other relationships. I'll be really frank this morning. Before I was a Christian, I did not like hanging around with Christians. It bothered me. I didn't like to be anywhere near them, you know, call them a joy a buzzkill or, or uh, something like that. There were a lot of factors to it. But I kept my distance. On top of that, there were lots of categories of people uh, that I kept my distance from generally. I was in high school, so I didn't have any friends over the age of 50. Period. When I got saved, it was a radi- uh, kind of a radical thing on a bunch of different levels, but one of the things that I suddenly had was a family. And it wasn't just people like me, which was all I'd known. I was a high schooler. Peers was what we do, right? Clicks was what we do. A week into being a Christian, a 65-year-old man and his wife brought me a gift. He was just getting to know me. He brought me a set of commentaries with a beautifully inscribed inscription on the front. This church, when I didn't show up, they would call to ask where I was. Some of my friends didn't do that. One guy in particular, the pastor of this church, he is so significant to me in my life. because of what he did for me as a pastor. It changes things. It makes these relationships close. It broadens out your boundaries in tons of ways. You will find friendships in the church that don't make sense outside of the church. And let me make this as an aside. One of the reasons why these things are so significant to Paul is because there's something on the line. Okay? That as the church lives these things out, they're either making the gospel visible or they're hiding it. Paul says something really significant in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that the barrier between Jew and Gentile has been broken down because they've made peace in Jesus Christ. In other words, racial barriers break down because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me reverse engineer that for you. The church should be a place where we can't explain outside of the significance of the gospel why people are in the same room together, why their love is so deep, why these usuals, do you know the HUP, the homogenous unit principle? Okay, it's a sociology principle that we all experience all the time. It's that you generally like to be with people like you. This is such a significant principle that it actually became a church planting philosophy about a decade and a half ago. And they went, well, if people like to be like people like them, then we'll just micro-target churches. So there will be 
20-something hipster churches, and there will be black churches, and there will be wealthy churches, and there will be poor churches. That is not the church of the New Testament. That is not the church of Jesus Christ. There is one circle, one boundary, one in in the church, and that's Jesus. Anyone is in Christ. He's a new creation. That's why a few chapters ago Paul says, uh, because of what Christ has done, we no longer regard anyone as according to the flesh. But it's not just that it removes our hesitations. It's not just that it takes away our bigotry. It's not just that it makes us uh, more comfortable with people than different than us. It creates intimacy in those places. Even when things get hard. Even when those relationships go sideways. And it's for a couple of reasons. One is because the church has a shared destiny. So the relationships we are building now are eternal relationships. But another one is because each and every local church is labeled in the New Testament as if it was a body of parts. The body of Christ. And Paul says to the church in, in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he says not one of us can say to another person in the church, I don't need you. God has so designed the body that we fully function together as a body. And so we cannot maintain distances and feuds and differences within the church without suffering in the same way as if you were to sever your hand. And there's another reason. It's because the gospel actually works. It means whatever differences we do encounter, whatever terrible behavior we do inflict on one another, it can be undone. There can be forgiveness. There can be true transformation. Listen, when I showed up in this little church and became a Christian, I was a mess. And that pastor who I love so much, he was convinced I wasn't actually a convert at all, that I was just there to date his daughters. Now, that's where I started. It's classic romantic comedy plot. That's where I was into, and then things changed. My intentions were wrong, and then I met Jesus, and things started to change, but in some ways, in many ways, I was still very much myself. And I learned from that pastor a love that I've tried to display, a love that I found displays who God is, which was a love that wouldn't send me away and wouldn't let me be myself. It was a love that cared about me so much, he never said, that's it, don't come back here. But it was also a love that didn't let me get away with things that were harmful to me or to others. So sometimes I would call to talk to his daughters and he'd go, no, we're going to have a talk. Sometimes I'd show up at his house and he'd say, you know what, today you need to go home and you need to think about this. I'd never had somebody who wasn't family care about where I was tomorrow care about where I was headed. I'd had people who go, yeah, do whatever you want. We'll always stand with you. And I'd had people go, no, we care too much about you to have you behave like this, change, and then. But he just said, no, we're going to change together. That's what it's supposed to be like inside. That's repentance. Listen to how he says it in verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you. Even that, why does he add that there? Because if he declares himself innocent, who's the guilty party? 
And he says, I'm not doing this to say, look, you're the problem, you fix it. That's not in his heart at all. He's just trying to say, you're acting like I need to fix something. There's nothing for me to fix. I'm standing here waiting as I've always been on your behalf with you fully in my heart. And then listen to what he says. He says, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. What does that mean? Most likely it's a merism, okay? English lit majors out there know what I'm talking about. A merism is when you take two opposite things or two things at the end of the spectrum to imply everything in the beginning. In fact, there's a merism in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a merism. He didn't create two things. He created all things. And we, he speaks of those all things as being these two big things for everything in between. Okay? It's like when uh, Jesus declares himself in the book of Revelation to be the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? Alpha is the A of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the Z of the Greek, Greek alphabet. Jesus says, I'm the whole thing. Okay? It's a merism. When he says here, uh, we, you are in our hearts to die together and live together, he says, ideally, he wants full, complete, and utter fellowship, no matter what's coming, no matter what they'll face, no matter what it means, life and death and everything in between. The relationships that we have available to us in Jesus Christ are to be intimate, significant, ongoing, and loving. And growing in holiness. We'll get to that in just a second. But consider this this morning. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, says, by this they will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Now, if you haven't read the rest of the story, you can read that, and that becomes a standard of entry. and says, only loving people can follow Jesus. I think he means something a little bit different there. He's saying that what the gospel does is so significant and so transformational, it looks like something. He says this will be the demonstration that the gospel is real, that God's really there, that Jesus actually lived, died, and resurrected by our love for one another. It's a demonstration of the fact that the gospel works. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. We're like a visible model house version of the kingdom. This is what it's like to worship Jesus. This is what it's like to be a part of God's family. Now, in our next series, we're going to talk about how to deal with the bumps, the differences, the, the difficulties. Forgiveness greases the gears of Christian fellowship like it does any other relationship. But let's look on the outside. And so, for those in the church, on the inside, he says, widen your hearts, open your mouths, be honest, know and be known, pursue relationship, enter into fellowship, and then in contrast, right in the middle, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, unequally yoked there, a yoke uh, is what you put on animals that are plowing a field. It's the piece of wood that wraps around them that you attach the plow to. Okay, oftentimes when you would plow a field, you would use not merely one animal, but two. He's drawing this metaphor, by the way, from the Old Testament itself. Because there's this strange law in Leviticus that you weren't allowed to plow a field with an ox in the yoke next to a donkey. Two oxes, fine. Two donkeys, fine. 
As far as we know, according to that verse, two zebras are probably fine, but not two different animals. Okay? In fact, it's a section of the law that's somewhat confusing to us in modern day because it also says don't wear clothing with two different types of fabric, don't sow two different types of seed in the same field. It's constantly against mixing. But what we don't often get about the Old Testament law for Israel was that a good deal of it was an ongoing object lesson. Paul gets that here, and so he applies it to what it's really about. It's not so much about oxen and donkey. It's about these differences here. He says, do not be unequally yoked. And actually, it's a really good metaphor. Because what, would, what do you think would happen if you had an ox next to a donkey pulling the same plow? They wouldn't pull straight. The yoke would be terribly uncomfortable for one of them, probably both of them, and it very, very well may harm the animals. Okay? The thing is, when we read do not be unequally yoked in the Old Testament, any Jewish farmer reading that is going, well, of course. Why, why would I, right? But that's the point. And so clearly here, he's talking about relationships, but we need to be clear about what he's not saying here. You see, all we have to do is read 1 Corinthians to discover what Paul is not saying. It's very easy to read this, and it sounds like sever all ties with people who aren't Christians, move out of the city, move away from people, start the commune. Now, we know that's not what Paul means, and I'll give you some pretty clear evidence. First off, how did the Corinthians become Christians? Was it because Paul escaped to the wilderness and left the world behind? No, of course not. But even when you read 1 Corinthians, here are the things that you actually find in the letter. In 1 Corinthians 8, he expects Christians to accept invitations to dinner from non-Christians. Now, let me point out an underlying truth. He expects them to get invited, right? He expects, in chapter 14 that non-Christians will be present when the church gathers. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is a place for you to be. You are welcome here this morning. We want you to be here. He says to those who are women in the church who became Christians after they married, don't get a divorce. Stay in the relationship. In fact, he makes a clarification in the letter in chapter 5, and he says, Now when I wrote to you and told you not to have fellowship with sinners, I was not talking about those outside the church, but inside the church. Once again, Jesus' ministry is a clear example of this. Jesus didn't sit down in the wilderness and say, If anyone really wants to know me and wants to be righteous, they'll come. He walked into people's lives and into people's houses. Very low barrier for relationship. But nonetheless, what Paul writes here must mean something. It must mean something. Notice that these, these pairs, he, he takes five pairs here. He says it five different ways. End of verse 14. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Do you see the pattern there? What X has Y with Z? And Y and Z are always opposites always distant, always inside and outside. So the first one is, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship 
has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So it's easy for us to say what this does not mean. In fact, take just the first thing he says here. Uh, uh, In fact, the one I want to draw your attention to is when it's the second one. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? The word there for fellowship, it means to have in common. Okay. So, for example, if you have food in common, you're fellowshipping by sharing a meal. But if we just read it that way, what is in common between inside and out, we have to recognize that the Bible maintains, including Paul, quite a lot. People inside and outside the church were created by God in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity. People inside and outside the church are undeserving of salvation and are sinners in need of salvation. People inside and outside the church are worthy of our love, time, and attention. We have that in common. But when he draws these words together, what he's talking about is not necessarily if we have any relationship, but the type of relationships we have. Once again, we can draw illustrations from what was actually going on in the church in Corinth. You see, these feasts that I mentioned earlier that were happening in pagan temples, they were basically religious halls that were being rented out by unions. Okay? So the silversmith union would have a big party. Okay? So how do you get ahead in the work? You go to the feast. You participate in the party. And Paul goes, there's a major portion of this that's incongruent. Because in that meal, they're going to offer that whole meal in celebration of a false god. And so the tension that's going on in the church in Corinth is, okay, so where is this line in relationship? And he uses, he uses both unequally yoked and partnership, I think, uh, in ways that at least start getting us to think in the right direction. If you've been in the church, if you've grown up in the church, you hear unequally yoked and you in, in, inherently think of marriage. Now, I already made a clarification that's an important one. Whatever that would mean, it doesn't mean if you're currently in a relationship with a non-believer, you should get a divorce. Okay, God hates divorce, Malachi says. Okay, Paul himself says to stay in that relationship. But we have to remember what marriage is. Marriage is a perfect illustration because of what Paul says about the church. I am ready to share with you in life and death and everything in between. Marriage, according to the Bible, is not just deciding to have a romantic relationship together, but to have life together, that the two become one flesh, that they share a single destiny. That is day after day after day of decisions, of choices, of progress and paths. And like it asks in the Proverbs, unless two agree, how can they walk together? See, sometimes we enter into marriage so narrow-minded and we just think, look, it's only just this compartment. No, not for the Christian. Marriage is a joining of two lives. Think of parenting. How you raise your kids, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, what's most important and worth pursuing in life, all of those at their baseline are big meaning-of-life questions. And so like two different animals pulling, pulling at the same plow, it doesn't work. You're setting yourself up for difficulty and frustration and failure. 
Now, if you're in a uh, significant romantic relationship with a non-Christian and you're a Christian this morning, my concern is not merely, and forgive me for my boldness, my concern is not merely that it will continue to force you to choose between your marriage and Jesus, that it will continue to draw you away from Jesus. My concern is that you're manifesting right now a life that doesn't follow him. My wife's brother at one point was dating a non-Christian and talking to his dad about it, and he just said, Dad, show me a place in the Bible where it says that I can't date a non-believer. And I just said, you know what? Speaking to his dad, I said, have him show you a place where this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. You see, if I can use another inside-outside metaphor this morning, the way Christianity describes itself isn't boundary set, meaning that it's not a life of don't do this and don't do this and stay away from this and don't do that. It's generally a center set belief. It's get close to this one, follow this one, move towards the center, which is Jesus. Okay? And so the concern I have is if you can take such a significant thing like the two becoming one flesh and say this doesn't matter, what you're actually saying is that your Christianity doesn't matter. You're saying that this isn't significant enough to have any impact on that. And this isn't my philosophy, this is Jesus's. He says you cannot follow me unless you hate brother or sister, mother or father, or even your own self. Jesus is either the most important relationship in your life or you're not in relationship with Jesus. But I want to be clear here. I'd love to tell you God says don't marry an unbeliever, and I think I could make a good case for that, but we're always going to have to deal with the prophet Hosea. He wasn't told by God merely to marry someone who wasn't a believer. He was told by God to marry a prostitute, a prostitute who would eventually leave him and sell herself into slavery, and then he was told to go and reclaim her and bry her back and make her his wife again. But I want you to recognize, if that's your case study, buckle up. But it means more than that. It's not just marriage. Marriage is just a good illustration. Here's what I would say. Here's a better way to think about this. The question is not, who can I be in relationship with, or even to some degree, what type of relationships, but recognize that there will be boundaries, that there has to be, that there will be things you cannot do. And I'm not talking merely about behavior. I'm talking about big decisions. He says here, um, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The idea there of portion has to do with destiny. It has to do with future. It has to do with progress. It has to do with the way that you're walking. The thing is here that every decision we make in life, and especially the important ones, are informed theologically. Not just us as Christians, everybody. The decisions they make say something about the world that we live in. And so, like I said, if, if Jesus is really significant in your life, it's going to make some partnerships inappropriate. It's, the question here is not, um, where's the one I want? It's not, is there any agreement between us and unbelievers? Of course there is. There's lots of things we should agree upon. The question is, is there any disagreement? And the answer has to be yes. The question is not so much, 
Um, is there any relationship, any fellowship with unbelievers? Of course there is. There should be. The question is, is there any place where it bottoms out? Where there's no depth? See, here's the thing. If this inside-outside metaphor is an accurate one to use, then there are some relationships we have, some ways of living we have, that are at least comparable to sitting in a burning house and knowing the way out and acting like there's not a fire. At least comparable to sitting with the starving and pretending to be starving ourselves when we know where to find bread. Paul says it's incongruent, not because these are bad people and we are good people, but because we have met the living God. Notice what he says here. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of living God, living God, as God said. And then he melds together these passages from all over the Old Testament. He draws from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Okay? He draws this all together. And if you go and search into the passages, you'll find consistently the topic has to do with this issue of boundaries. And so notice what it says here as he quotes, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so there has to be some sort of difference. In fact, notice what he says uh, in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let, our, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Recognize here that a prime application that Paul is making is not so much about who we spend our time with, but how we spend our time. It's about behavior. It's about what we do and do not do. And a lot of times, that's what's going to dictate the distances, Okay. Do you remember watching the after-school specials where the kid says he's not going to do drugs and then the other kid responds, I thought we were friends? That's super trite, and it's not all that this is talking about, but it's a decent illustration, okay? It changes things. Your relationship changes things, and so your behavior changes with it. And I think all of us who are Christians know the temptation to not let these things make a difference when they make a difference. But Paul says they have to. They have to. Because we are the temple of the living God. Do you remember how serious the borders of the tabernacle are maintained in the Old Testament? How many rules are laid out? Did you know that the Levitical priesthood themselves camped around the tabernacle basically as a barrier of safety to avoid accidental contamination? Now, what God has done in Jesus Christ is very different. He didn't build the tabernacle and send it away. He made us, his church, his temple, and sent us into the world. So it's clearly not distance and absence. But it is something. And I want to point this out this morning. This is not just about maintaining or avoiding contamination for us. Clearly, this has to do, to some degree, with influence. In fact, I would say that that's a pretty good litmus test of your relationships. Which way does the influence flow? Are you becoming more like them or are they becoming more like you? Okay, it's just a standard. It's not a perfect one. Don't use it as the only metric. But it's a good question to ask. But here's the thing. We sometimes convince ourselves that we're unloving 
by making these divisions and distances. Not if the gospel is true. Paul wants the Corinthian church to do this, not just for their sake, but for the sake of those who do not yet know Jesus. And when we behave like others do, when we're part of the crowd, when we don't draw those lines, then we have nothing to offer. It can be. But the last thing I want to point out to you is the reason Paul gives. Look again at 7.1. Since we have these promises... What pulls all of these verses together for Paul? What's the point he's trying to make? That God has given us promises. That's probably not how you read it the first time through, so we better read it again. Listen again to what Paul says. He says, we're the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them. In fact, let me change the pronouns. Among you, church. I will mock among you. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Simply put, all Paul is saying here is if we're going to be in, we should be in. We've been invited into the family of God. He's given us promises and said, I, will, I want to be a part of your life. I want to be involved. I want you to be my sons and daughters and me to be your father. And John just asked this question in John chapter 1. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. Once again, the posture of insiders is one that is invitational and open. It says, come inside. But it cannot be one that pretends there is no boundary, that pretends there is no door. And once again, not just because it makes, it, makes us wonder if, if we are really inside as opposed to outside, but it also doesn't leave any invitation for those who still stand outside. It's just the same as talking to someone in the middle of winter who's underdressed and shivering Knowing that there's an indoors, you're here in your coat, and it's like, well, it's fine. James challenges that. He says, don't say to those who are in the cold, go be warm and be filled. When their lives is one of cold and dark. Here's the thing. The way we live our lives as Christians, the ethic is driven, not entirely, but partially, by a missional mindset. The church exists on behalf of those who aren't part of it. We live our lives and we draw those distinctions because those distinctions show who God really is. Shows that God can take people like us who have the same sins and the same struggles and the same difficulties as everyone and say, yeah, but God is changing me. It's not a severing of relationship and it's clearly not a towering over in judgment and self-righteousness, but it is an invitation There is an inside, and there's an outside. And here's what I would suggest for all of us who are Christians this morning. Two things. One, we've tasted this. If you've met Jesus Christ, if you believe in what he's done, if you've received his Holy Spirit, then you've seen relationship shift. Relationships that were really close get harder. And relationships that were non-existent and somewhat confusing are suddenly really deep and beautiful. But also... 
It's a work in progress. You've seen where the tension is, where the struggle is, where, in, and the truth is, how many of us know times in our lives, and definitely in the lives of other people, where it's the opposite of this? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I keep myself at a distance from other Christians, and I have no distinguishing marks between me and non-Christians. That's a place we, we can end up. That's a place we can be, but it is not a place we can stay. Let me just reiterate that ultimately both of these, all of these boundaries are love-driven. Okay. We love one another because Christ has loved us, because we see Christ working in one another. When Paul says that his joy is the Corinthian church, this is something that's totally insane. It means you look at people who are deeply struggling, deeply flawed, and they fill you with joy. Why? I'll give you another term that Paul uses that helped me to think through this. Trophies of grace. Suddenly you go, man, I cannot believe what God is doing in that person's life. It's a change. A significant one. A valuable one. One that we should continue to press into. And if you're not a Christian this morning, the invitation stands. The distinction that Christianity makes is not that there are right people and wrong people. It's not that there's good people and bad people. Even saying that there's living people and dead people, which is a biblical metaphor, falls short of what we're saying. There are those who have stepped inside, and there are those who are still being invited to come inside. That's the distinction. And we would implore you, as Paul does in chapter 5, be reconciled to God. I didn't say this when we went through this passage. It hit me later. Be reconciled. That's passive grammar. Paul gets to this whole compelling case of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and he doesn't say, reconcile yourselves. He just says, will you just be reconciled? God came as a man, lived the life that you could not live, died the death that you deserved, and freely offers you forgiveness, his Holy Spirit, relationship with him. Will you be reconciled? Let's pray. God, as we've seen this morning, all of us draw boundaries, and all of us who are Christians are constantly trying to figure out where those borders are, how to determine uh, what is and what isn't, what should be and what should not be. But as we see this morning, what sets the boundaries into clarity is the center. It's the promises that you've promised to be a father to us and we as your sons and daughters, that you've not just called us out from there, but you've called us to welcome us, to receive us into relationship with you. And so I pray, Lord, for a reorientation that's not merely boundary set, not about contagions and things like that, but is instead pressing on deeper into what God has for us. Because that will lead us deeper in and it will lead us into the far reaches outside. It'll take us deeper into the lives of one another in the church to care for one another, to love one another, to open our lives and bear our very hearts to one another 
but it will also compassionately draw us out into the world. I pray that you continue this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we respond this morning, as we worship, if you're a Christian, feel free to come forward at any time and partake of communion. Remember what Jesus has done. If you're in need of prayer this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, there's people who would love to pray for you. They'll be sitting right up front, and you can join them for that. But let's take some time now and respond uh, to God and his word. I just want to remind you, if you have children in children's ministry, feel free now to go get them so they can join us for worship and for communion. Uh, join me singing to the Lord. Thank you.